0: I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. Today, I'm excited to be joined by a very special guest, Sofia Gomez Villafan. Sofia is an accomplished cross-country mountain biker and gravel cyclist, She's represented Argentina at the highest level in the summer 2020 games. She's a former Cape Epic champion. She finished this year's edition just before this show and she was on the podium once more. She was the 2022 Unbound winner and finished second overall in the much-hyped Lifetime Grand Prix series. But Sophia's insights on health and fitness, they extend far beyond the world of cycling. In this episode, we'll be talking to her about how she balances her training with competition schedule with other aspects of her life, her approach to nutrition and hydration, and her advice to listeners on everything from tire choice to that age-old gravel question, to aero bar or not. This is a little bit of what awaits you on today's episode.
1: And then when I got to Emporia, I thought there was going to be more road because my little ride with GPS file said it was like 40% road. Turns out it was 1% road. Uh, so I was a little <laughs> bit concerned.
0: It's a shock to the system.
1: I see that as like the better racing for the women if we don't have men impacting our race because right now at the end of the day, men dictate which women wins. Like they, they control our race more than we do. Like last year at Unbound, the day before the race, they were doing a new shoot on the Diverge STR. And a specialized called me and was like, hey, can you do a 6 a.m. shoot the day before Unbound? I'd be like, hell no. <laughs> like, I am here to win the race. Like, I am not here to be do a photo shoot the day before my biggest race of the year. I always say they're goals, they're not dreams, because dreams aren't real. We're like a goal you can set steps and processes to achieve them. So you know, or like the whole thing of trust the process. Like I don't trust the process.
0: I know the process. Sophia, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having
0: me on. How are you? Are you refreshed and recovered from Cape Epic?
1: Uh, I don't know if I would say refreshed. I am very much (laughs) jet lagged still. Uh, I think I was up between 3 and 5 a.m. today and then fell back asleep and then up at 7. So, uh, yeah, I have a couple of easy days, have a massage today, and hopefully I'll be back to being brand new in a couple of days.
0: I was watching the other cool highlights package on YouTube. You probably didn't watch much of the highlights package considering you're in the race, but it was a cool highlights package. So I got to kind of catch up each day on what was going on.
1: Yeah, no, the Cape Epic people do such a good job uh, from all the media. like. They have it so dialed from just being able to have it on YouTube. You know, they have two choppers following the races. They have people on motorcycles, uh, people on e-bikes. So the coverage for that race is really amazing. And I highly recommend it to anybody that hasn't um, had a chance to look it up to really go see because they kind of set the gold standard of what off-road cycling media should really be.
0: The e-bike thing is kind of wild, isn't it? I was. It took me a little bit of time to twig. I was looking at the men's race, and it was the break in the men's race. So there's like the six best mountain bike dudes in the world. And then there's these two Freds sitting behind them. I'm like, no way. How are these two lads after holding on? (laughs) These guys are after fluking their way into the break. It took me a little bit of time to figure out, no, no, these are cameramen on e-bikes.
1: Yeah, and they it's pretty crazy because they have, I think they have GoPros that they can like live stream. And then they also are set up with headphones and a mic so they can actually talk and kind of give feedback to the like Annika and just the announcers and even just to the people on the stream to like say like oh like so and so is doing this or like they're looking good or they you know they're just recovered or just dropped back so uh they do such a good job and yeah it's amazing what they've
0: done for the sport. There must be some pretty good bike handlers on the e-bikes otherwise they'd be just wrecking on the the descents.
1: You know the the descents of the epic aren't anything crazy I think if anything the climbs are The more savage part. And they have so much travel compared to what we're racing that normally they keep up just fine. But for us, when we were doing the prologue, um, the e bike actually flatted right behind us on like the Toyota Technical Descent. So we didn't actually have much coverage of Katarina and I because our e bike was no longer with us.
0: So, how much travel are you guys running on your mountain bike, Sarah?
1: Uh, So, I was running my Epic Evo, uh, which is 120 mil travel, which Normally, I would have just run the regular Epic, uh, but this year's Epic was a bit rougher. Um, South Africa has been, like everywhere else in the world almost, has been getting hit by a lot of weather and a lot of rain. So the conditions for the trails and then the dirt roads, everything was super chunky. So I was super happy with that bike.
0: My background totally rode up until two years ago when I started riding, like everyone in the world started getting into gravel and sucked into buying... New gravel-specific sunglasses, gravel-specific cargo shorts, gravel-specific gels. (laughs) So I've been playing around in that world, but I think the gravel movement has been very good for easing people in a little bit softer to mountain biking. Factor Bikes uh, sponsored a podcast, and they sent me out a bunch of bikes, including the Lando cross-country bike. So I had my first mountain bike race ever, like two weekends ago, and it's such a weird experience because... I don't know, maybe I've been at like a thousand bike races over the last, you know, 10 years. But it was so weird going to a bike race and feeling like an outsider at a bike race. Because even if I race in France or I've raced in Belgium or Canada or America or whatever, there's a very familiar feeling when you go to a bike race where you understand what's going on. Like I'm going to sign-on, I'm going picking up my numbers. I was at the mountain bike race. I was like, do I even need numbers? Like, what happens here? Do you sign out on a mountain bike race? And I had no idea what pressure goes in the tires. And a mechanic friend of mine, I texted him saying, "Uh, I'm bottoming out a lot going across the rock garden sections. And he said to me like, oh, what pressure did you put in your rear suspension? And I was like, you're meant to put pressure in your rear suspension.
1: (laughs) Yeah. it's
0: It's been a whole new world for me. But it's fun, right? It's amazing fun. I'm going to, maybe it's just like, what do they call it? Recency bias, but it feels way more fun than road. It's just much more <laughs> stimulating and less elitist and less aero socks and skin suits and more <laughs> jumps and skids.
1: Yeah, I think there's like a meme that went around for a while. It's like a little reel saying like road cyclists, like they hate their life. Like when they're going up the hill. And then they finally get like down the hill and they just get to cruise. And then once they're at the coffee shop, they get to have fun. Meanwhile, mountain bikers are having a blast going up, have even more fun going down. So it's like (laughs) they love the entire ride where like in road cycling, there's a bit more suffering, you know, like you're always wanting to hammer every climb and, you know, do all of that. And I think just mountain biking, you kind of get to enjoy the entire ride, uh, no matter where you are
0: the race I took part in was about 45 minutes from my house and I still have the roadie mentality on. So I was like, oh, I'm going to ride home get some extra mileage in. And I'm riding home and I'm kind of sitting on the back of a local group and one of them like shouts, hole left. And I'm just like, oh my God, cyclists are such clean shorts on the road compared to mountain bikes. It's like "Whole left. It's this tiny little pothole like, rewind a half an hour you're coming off these jumps and just sending it And they're like oh little road imperfection on your left be careful guys And you're like oh they're different worlds
1: yeah and i would say that's the interesting part about gravel because you kind of have everybody from both extreme ends kind of meeting in the middle and the people that come from an off-road background like there's a lot of stuff that to a road cyclist might, might be scary but for us it's just it's whatever and like they're always pointing out a bunch of stuff and i'm like that's just a rock like (laughs) <laughs> you don't need to point that one out or like, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, but it makes for some really good racing. So it's, uh, yeah, I've become a really big fan of gravel racing in the past few years.
0: While we're on the subject, what pressure should I have been running in my rear suspension?
1: Oh, that's a good question. It, how, What kind of bike?
0: The It's the Lando CX cross country. I think there's 120 travel on it.
1: 120. Yeah. Normally you could run, you know, I just know what my pressures are, which is, Basically, on the rear, I run just a little under body weight, and then on the front, you run about half of that. Uh, but it totally depends on setup, the trails that you're riding.
0: Is that body weight in pounds or body weight in kilos?
1: Oh, pounds. Yeah, but like for example, I weigh one twenty, and then I think this year on my Evo, I actually went even a little bit lower, so I went to like one hundred five, um, and then I'm running about sixty on the front. But
0: I didn't notice even after I put I put in. 120 psi into my rear suspension i'm 80 kilograms i don't know what that is in pounds 2.2 so it's like 160 or 170 yeah uh so i put in 120 so i was probably light on the amount of pressure but i i did feel like i was bottoming out quite a bit like i was touching cranks like my natural inclination to get on the power coming out of a corner from the road like the stuff you wouldn't even think about when you come out of a corner in the road, but you never really think about when you can get back on the power. It's just intuitive from years of riding the road. It's like, okay, now is the time I can get back on the power. But at that point where I was getting back on the power, I felt I'd hit my cranks a lot on the mountain bike. So it's probably a thing of just getting more time on the trails.
1: Yeah, that. And then, you know, the other thing, uh, SAG is the term that we use in mountain biking a lot for setting up suspension. So Most traditional suspension systems, you'll run about like 20% sag, which means when you sit on your bike and like you can kind of squish it a bit and then most suspensions have a little O-ring that you would push up and then you lightly get off your bike and then you see how much the suspension goes up and then that's like a percentage of the whole travel. So normally like 15, 20% depending on how you like to ride is what most people do but it's yeah. Suspension is, it's really intimidating actually. Like I much prefer to have either my boyfriend or like the suspension people at Specialized tell me like, set it up for me and I'll write it and I'll tell you it feels good or bad. And then they make the tweaks. Um, cause you have rebound and compression and obviously pressure, and then you can put tokens in there and there's so much and it's pretty intimidating. So, uh, I feel
0: Yeah. <laughs> bikes are getting like Formula One cars now. Like I used to be able to take my bike like totally apart, put it totally back together. I was like one of those US military dudes taking his rifle apart, cleaning it and putting it back together. I can hardly touch my road, gravel or mountain bike these days because everything's electric. Everything's disc brakes. It's hydraulic bleeding the brakes. It's like, what the hell is going on? You need like computers and stuff to, to work on your bikes. It's a, it's a different world. I sound like an old lad now.
1: Yeah. And well, and now uh, SRAM just launched their new transmission mountain bikes, uh, you know, drive chain. Well, it's not a drive chain. It's a transmission now. And that kind of has changed that whole thing, like turned it on its head. I've never seen a system that it's so simple to use and it's so bombproof. proof. That it's actually going to make it a lot easier to work on bikes because there's no more limit screws, none of that stuff. It's, you can set it up within five minutes and have a working transmission. So it's pretty cool.
0: Is this the one where they've got rid of the hanger and the derailleurs mounted direct onto the frame now?
1: Yes, exactly. So you can like stand on the derailleur because that rear axle is the strongest part of the whole bike. So you can like stand on it and it doesn't bend and it doesn't do anything. So the idea is that like when you crash as well you're very likely not going to mess up your rear derailleur because it's so strong on how it's mounted. Um, And then with the shifting, they do something called cassette mapping. So it knows, the rear derailleur knows where you are in the cassette and it will pick, it has a specific spot for the chain to go down the cassette or up the cassette. So a lot of riders feel like the response is a little bit slow, but the difference is now that you can keep pedaling at like, 300, 400 watts and shift and not have to ease up a little bit because the transition to go up or down the cassette is so smooth that you can put a lot of high torque on it.
0: Some of the innovations are crazy. Have you tried the classified rear hub on the road or gravel?
1: Mm-mm. What is that?
0: It's like magic. See if you can get a hold of it. It's it's caused a lot of hype and they have some really high profile investors, uh, road guys like Tom Boone and Fabian Cancellara have invested into it. It's making the front chain ring obsolete. So the, the shift from your big ring to your small ring all happens internally inside the rear hub. So you still have big ring, small ring in range of gears, but you don't physically have the front derailleur that moves it from big ring to small ring. So you run a one-by on the front, but you still have the, the choice to go big ring, small ring on the back but you can sprint full gas. Like you could be 11, 12, 1300 watts sprint and shift from big ring to small ring without any drop in chain or anything. It's so wild. When you someone explains it to you, it's like, oh, that doesn't sound that impressive. But when you actually use it, it's like trying to figure out how this is working. It was blowing my mind. Now I was quite hung over when the classified rep gave me a go of it. and I was just like, I'm just not in a headspace to be able to comprehend how this even works. It just feels like magic. <laughs> it's voodoo. But I don't know how you get a wheel change though if you're in a road race and like whose neutral service is never having a rear classified hub. So you're pretty screwed there.
1: Yeah, I, I would say like bikes have come such a long way in the past five years and so has suspension. And I think that drive chain component of the bicycle is really where the next invention progression of, this, of the bicycle is going to move forward. Because um, I think we have have maximized so much in how a frame is designed, how suspension is designed. But then now that drive chain, I think that's that's where we're going to start to see a lot of changes over the next four to five years,
0: for sure. It seems like the only questions anyone wants to ask, though, when we talk about gravel, especially in the context of a pro, is like, are you using narrow bars or are you not using aero bars? And what tire width are you using today? It's like every conversation is dominated by this. Anytime I've gone to a gravel race and I put up on Instagram, hey, I'm going to ride the Rift this week or, you know, coming up in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go out and do Traca and Girona. Like already I'm getting messages going like, what tire width are you going to use? What pressure are you running? I was like, I don't know. I haven't a clue. Like I'll figure it out (laughs) closer to the time. How important is tire width choice? And as a follow-up to that, how frustrating is it constantly answering the question of what tire choice you're on?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a, for the amateur, is it that important? Not really. For the professional, it can make or break your race for sure. Um, Mainly because, If you're running to a tire that doesn't have enough protection and you're racing somewhere that's like super rocky and has sharp rocks, then you're going to flat. Or, you know, if you are running too little PSI in a super narrow tire, that could also make you flat. So it's so much course dependent. You know, I have the ability to switch tires between normally I run the Pathfinder from Specialized or the Tracer. Um, Those are kind of my two go-to tires and I can do the switch pretty frequently because I'm so used to on a mountain bike, we're always switching our tires depending on the dirt conditions, but on the road bike, you guys always have kind of that same surface. So for the amateurs, I always recommend just pick a tire that you really, really like and kind of stick to it. Uh, But then when it comes for us in the pro race, yeah, like if, if the course isn't really technical and it's flat and fast, then I'll go for more of a 32 or a 33 uh, and maybe put an insert in there as well. But if the course is something like I'm bound, you know, I might go up a little bit higher. I think I ran 42 Pathfinders and then last year I did a race called rule of three that had gravel, tarmac and single track. So for that race, I ran a 47 just so you need, you have a little more suppleness in the feeling of the bike. So for me, tire selection is crucial. I'm lucky enough that my, one of my teammates, Russell Finsterwald, he's such a nerd geek on equipment and all of that stuff. And I just kind of let him make my choice of what tire to run. I'm like, you know, (laughs) most of, most of the time I will run the same unless he's like, I'm running narrower tire because I need more help on the climb, but you should be okay with this. So yeah, he's kind of my, my tire guru. (laughs)
0: So I haven't tried the inserts yet. So are you running sealant and then the inserts on top of those? Exactly.
1: Yeah. And not always.
0: And if you catch a puncture, how effective are they?
1: Well, hopefully you don't catch a puncture. That's the thing. So uh, the main thing is that sometimes because you are kind of racing in a pack and you're coming at stuff super high speed and not everybody has time to point out the potholes or whatever and you're having to change your line, like sometimes you will have super hard hits on that rear or front tire. And what that little tire insert allows you to do, it kind of absorbs that impact. So you're less likely to pinch flat.
0: Ah, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. And then normally you can run a little bit lower pressure, which will make the bike feel more in control rather than super high pressure. I think I realized that a lot of the Europeans will run ex- like way higher pressure than we do here in the US. So like for me, I prefer to run a lower pressure. And have that subtleness, unless the course is super, super fast. And then you kind of need that higher pressure for like rolling resistance and all of that stuff.
0: Have you used Muckoff, this product, BAM? Have you tried that? I have not. Oh, you did get your hands on this. It changed your life. I was out last week on the gravel bike and I punctured and I was like, oh, I'm really not in the mood for plugs and CO2 cans. And a friend of mine had just given me a can of this, BAM. And I was like, try it next time you puncture. And it's sealant and compressed CO2 all in one can. So you just get it and you're like, and it does everything all in one go. I was like, oh my God, this just saved my day. But I haven't raced with it, but I'm planning on bringing it into races with me this year. Because it just seems like, okay, this could be a really fast solution to getting out of a a puncture.
1: But shouldn't your sealant that's in your wheel take care of that already? Like what's the advantage
0: i guess the slit was just a bit too big for the sealant or the old sealants maybe dried up a little or something like that but i guess yeah. if you're putting new sealant in regularly there's maybe not a super advantage to it but for me anytime i'm i've punctured i'm like it's spitting out a bit of sealant. It's like I, maybe i'm just not putting enough sealant in in the first place but it's like how frequently would you top up your sealant
1: Well, if I'm at a race, it's fresh sealant for every race, for sure. Yeah. That's no problem. Yeah. When I'm training, that's a whole different story because I don't have my mechanic, Chris Mathis, here to uh, tune up my rigs when I go training every day. Uh, But normally, at least once a month, I like to switch it um, just to make sure. And there's different types of sealants too, like stands, for example, they have their traditional sealant and then they have something that they call race sealant that is a sealant that has higher particles. So like that sealant, you can't run it through the valve that you had to like break the tire off the bead to put that sealant in there. Otherwise it will clog your valve for that sealant likely to take care of bigger holes, but it gets chunkier quicker. So they say like, you need to switch that maybe once a week. So like that makes it a perfect race sealant. Or if you're going on a massive gravel adventure, then, you know, you would use that type of sealant, but yeah, hopefully you just don't flat. <laughs> And then there's
0: no problem. I hadn't realized with the inserts that I knew the inserts because people have been playing with them on the road. And I know last year in Paris-Roubaix, a couple of the EF guys ran sealants, got punctures late, and were still able to come in with, they were saying, the equivalent of like 40 PSI in the tire. Not amazing for a road. It's very soft to be running 40 PSI in a road race. But it'll still get you to the finish, and it'll maybe allow you to keep rolling to communicate to the team car that you've had a flat and get ready for a bike change or get ready for a wheel change. So it can be pretty vital. But what I've seen they're running this week when we're talking about tyre pressure, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it will have already taken place. But we're recording on the Thursday before. Uh, Ron van Vlanderen, Tour of Flanders, and Jumbo Visma are running a... Uh, Inter- a hub on their reserve carbon wheels and the hub allows them to dynamically adjust tire pressure during the race. So they can press a button that's Bluetooth on the handlebars and it'll inflate or deflate the tires coming into cobble sections. That's got to be coming to gravel soon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious to see because I think last year was it DSM, like that road team that had something yeah. and they were going to run it and then they decided not to. You know, the thing is if a system like that fails on you and then you end up too low or way too high, there's like such big consequences. So yeah, I'm curious to see what they end up doing and if it actually works. And, you know, if there is really a performance benefit out of it, because it sounds like the technology just to me seems so new that it's like the possibility of error is just too high for me to want to risk it in a gravel race. And then the other thing to consider is when you're riding you know, you might start at X pressure. And as the day goes on, you actually get more tire pressure as well. You know, it could be up to three to five PSI, depending on how much the weather is changing. So that's something else we have to consider on the gravel races when you're out there for six, seven, 10 hours, you know, just think like, okay, as the day goes on, my tire is going to get a lot firmer as well.
0: Why is your tire getting firmer? Because of the outside temperature?
1: Yep, exactly. So like for me at a, Yeah, at a stage of like an epic, for example, normally my tire pressure would go up for one to two PSI. And then on the gravel, when it's a really long race, and there is a fluctuation, a high fluctuation in weather, because you start at 6, 7 a.m. and you might end up, but finish at 2 or 3 p.m. I could see up to five PSI as well.
0: That's super interesting. Uh, Just because we have to talk about it, because everyone will complain if we don't. Uh, Aero bars on or off, or do you care?
1: I don't care. I have ran them. I I should say I won Unbound on them. uh, And I was super, you know, it was my first time racing Unbound. And, you know, I was talking with Keegan and Russell and they're like, you don't need aero bars. And I'm like, well, in the women's race, we end up by ourselves so often that um, if I can be more aerodynamic, it will be huge gains. And, you know, I spent my whole May last year on the road training on my little clip on aero bars. And then when I got to Emporia, I thought there was going to be more road because my little ride with GPX file said it was like 40% road. Turns out it was 1% road. Uh, So I was a little (laughs) bit concerned. (laughs) That's a
0: shock to uh, the system.
1: Yeah, it's like, oh boy, I didn't really practice my little aero bars on the dirt that much. Uh, But I ended up just being fine and, you know, I practice a lot of cornering and okay, how quickly can I go from being in my arrow position to having one hand to two hands and turning left, turning right? Like at what speed can I confidently turn on it? So I did do a lot of stuff in terms of safety, just because I, I didn't want to be a risk, not only to myself, but to other competitors. But now at least for the lifetime Grand Prix races that we're doing, arrow bars are banned. So we're no longer allowed to use them and But this is the
0: weird thing. They didn't ban them for amateurs. Like all that you're talking about there, you went through kind of a due diligence to make sure you're going to be safe to yourself and safe around other people. When I think about who do I not want on aero bars around me, it's like the 50-year-old dentist. (laughs) I don't want him on aero bars. But they're still allowed to use aero bars in the amateur events. Like... Did they get this ruling totally like upside down? When I seen that, I was like, surely that's a typo. Surely the pros are allowed to use them and the amateurs aren't allowed to use them. It makes no sense.
1: Yeah, I think they didn't want to take them away for the amateurs that do take the whole day to finish that race that are out there for 16, 17 hours. You know, like I think having that second hand position is and comfort is super crucial. And they're not going as fast as we are. You know, like I would be almost. In a paceline, you know, maybe seventh wheel back and on my arrow bars. And I was confident, and I was probably the only one that could do that out of the group of people that I am racing with. But yeah, I mean, I think it's good that they kept it for the amateurs. It's good that the pros don't have it because our bikes don't look as silly anymore. So that's good for the sport <laughs> when you're looking good on a bike because. Yeah, sometimes you look at the gravel setups and you're like, oh God, what are we doing to cycling? Like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the whole thing with the TT bikes and the funny helmets and the socks oh, to the so head. Much. And yeah, so uh, I think it's good. But I think for us, you know, at Unbound, the guys that we're going to be racing with in the amateur field that are going to catch up to the women's field, I will say the majority of them won't have them on.
0: So. Uh, What do you think about those staggered start times now where you're going to start? Is it slightly behind the pro men? It does change the race a lot, doesn't it? Because it's a different type of rider that can hang on to the guys. There's a different physiological requirement from holding on to somebody and actually getting separation from a different group. They're two different requirements. Do you think that's going to change the results or change the racing dynamic?
1: It will change the start dynamic for sure. So right now the pro men go off at six, I think the women go off at 6.02 and then the amateur, they still have their mass start at 6.10. So eight minutes behind the women. So yeah, it's just, you just don't know what's going to happen. Like, are we going to catch the pro men? Cause they're going to start slow or are the amateurs going to start really fast and then they're going to jump us and then we're going to hold on to their wheel. My whole viewpoint, it, I mean, it's, I'm glad that they're doing something about it, but I've always been a huge advocate for you do a separate start and you do no drafting rules. So, like, pro men can't draft off the women, the women can't draft off the amateur men or the pro men. Like, it's all separate. But obviously, at something like Unbound, I don't think the women have the depth of the field in order to finish that race in a time that would be decent. I think we would, you know, my winning time last year was like a little over 10 and a half and I think if we would do a separate start with no drafting rules we're probably going to be looking at going back up to 12 hours just cuz we don't have that we just don't have the numbers to move that women's peloton that fast like the women that would be doing the the work would be those top 10 women where in the men You know, you have 60, 80 men that can go super hard for five hours and are more than happy to take polls, where in the women's race, it would be a bit more of survival. But I'm also, I mean, I am, I think I'm alone on my viewpoint, but I would almost even be okay with, for Unbound, like having the women have their own start, no drafting rules, and then decrease our distance. So we race, in theory, for the same amount of time as the men, but a shorter course, which goes against most of the gravel people in the world. But um, I think for me, I see that as like the better racing for the women if we don't have men impacting our race. Because right now, at the end of the day, men dictate which women wins. Like they they control our race more than we do.
0: And there's still potential for some, I know team dynamics aren't huge in gravel, but it is moving more towards team dynamics. You've seen some of the EF guys and some of the EF girls jumping into races. And, you know, they are you know, there's a word that comes before cycling, professional. They are professionals. So you, you can envisage a scenario that's not too far away where you have one of the pro men dropping back and one of the pro women sending it out to a women's group and the man sort of waiting up for them and them doing like a two-up time trial. Like, it seems like if they're going to be separate, they should be totally separate and not have an ability to manipulate it with clever tactics.
1: Yeah, and I think most professional riders know better then like I think you know my first gravel race was uh steamboat gravel and that was the year that there was the whole drama with the cinch people and Lauren DiGrasenzo having her teammates basically pace her and she denied all of it but you know I know what my friends told me that they were in that group saw and I know what I experienced from like even master people that were part of that program so I think that whole thing blew up so big and it was such a media craziness that we know better to not have that happen because you're going to get killed in the media if you do have a man drop back to help you. But like I said, I am a huge advocate for separate starts, no drafting rules, and just let us have our own race and not have the men dictate how our race plays out.
0: You could say it's against the spirit of gravel.
1: Yeah, I also say the spirit of gravel does not (laughs) apply to professional gravel racing.
0: (laughs) Well, see, this is the problem. And when there's incentives, people are going to find ways to manipulate to the very extreme edges of those rules.
1: Well, exactly. Like if you're doing everything you possibly can in training with nutrition, you know, the way you eat, sleep, recovery, massage, to get one, 2%, if you think about the percentage gain that you could have by having a man be out there to chaperone you in a 200 mile race, like that percentage is probably what 15, 20% performance improvement. <laughs> like, duh, like that would be the easiest way to have a better performance. But, you know, I think anytime that happens, we kind of speak up in the Peloton, you know, like we do have, um there's this girl, Whitney Allison. She has her husband, Zach Allison. They're always racing and like they, Somehow, always find themselves in the field together. Yet he's like always in the back. Like, he's like, I am not even going to the front. Like, you're not allowed to be behind my wheel. Like, I'm not getting this kind of heat, you know? Or last year at Big Sugar, we had this girl, Sevilia she had flatted and her coach Dennis had flatted and then he basically paced her back. And then he came to the front of the group with her on her wheel and started throttling. And then I think it was Zach that came up and told him to like, piss off. Like, you cannot do that. Like you're messing up. These girls are racing for, you know, the last race of the series, like they're racing for, you know, the fifth spot maybe, or whatever it was. Uh, so he was like, you cannot come and do this, especially after you just bridge your rider up from like a massive deficit. So yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I feel like it's always the conversation after every single gravel race, and I'm like kind of over talking in the interviews in the media, always like, "Well, how did this play out, or how did this man have an effect on your race?" You know, and I like I I just say, you know, I've said it from day one: separate start, no drafting rules. That would be that's
0: the way to go. What was the overall sort of feeling about the Lifetime Grand Prix Series? Was it a good thing for the sport in the U.S.?
1: A hundred percent. It has given a lot of riders, myself included, an ability to continue within the sport and not have to travel to Europe all the time. Cause I think as people that are based in the U S like, you know, it sucks to go to Europe for two weeks, come back. Like you don't even get time to really get adjusted to time change before you're already having to turn around and just gravel racing is kind of, thriving in the US and is yeah, just given a lot of people the opportunity that no longer wanted to chase that World Cup cross country schedule or you know the European road schedule and ability to stay in the US and make a really good living.
0: I have a really exciting season of gravel racing planned, some amazing races. I absolutely can't wait for the Migration Gravel Race over in Kenya and Badlands in Spain jumps out as another highlight. But I really don't want to slip on this podcast. I'm not going to. I'm sticking to this six days a week schedule that I've promised. So I needed to find tools to make sure that every hour I have available counts. That's why I'm super happy to partner with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's in the recording studio right beside my desk. If I have an hour free between interviews, I literally just jump on. It's removing all the friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees, trying to get things to connect. It just works seamlessly every single time. The Wattbike Adam, it's also perfect for when I decide to do a Zwift race. It has crisp gear changes, 1% power accuracy, and a max gradient capability of 25%. Even on the steepest climbs over in Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm using like a custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route in Watopia, I'll select more suitable climbing gear ratio. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend this one any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever gonna need. You can now get 10% off the Wattbike Adam. Just head on over to whatbike.com. They have a limited time sale running at the moment. So if you've been on the fence and you've been thinking about buying a smart bike for a while, or like me, the turbo trainer was just proving too frustrating, now is an amazing time to buy. Just head on over to whatbike.com. The prize money was brilliant for the Lifetime Grand Prix, but like I want to say brilliant in inverted commas, it was brilliant compared to other races. But if you look at the amount of money you can win, like it's not enough to buy a bike hardly at the end of the season. Never mind, you know, the rigors that go into full-time training, equipment, preparation, and the bills that everyone has. Like, you know, it's not 15, 16-year-old kids racing each other. People have to pay cell phone bills, health insurance. Like they're real people, these athletes. Everyone's still so dependent on personal sponsors coming in. I know you're working with Specialized and a bunch of other sponsors. But what's that What's that like having this dual role as, yes, A, a professional athlete, but B, almost like a content creator or cycling personality? I'm just... I'm reluctant to use the word influencer because I hate it. And you're not an influencer, you're a professional athlete. So it's like, but you get what I'm getting at. It's a hybrid role between, yes, you're an athlete, but you still also need to build a profile for yourself to attract these sponsors.
1: Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? Like if you're winning races people don't really care about your social media presence because you're the one standing at the top of the podium. But what the social media aspect allows is a rider that you know is maybe consistently in the top 10, but isn't quite winning races or being on podiums, the ability to earn a good enough income because they have such a large following and have such a voice within the community. And a lot of people listen to them or the media is always talking about them. So it allows you to give yourself value and more depth into, you know, what you can provide your sponsors because at the end of the day, it is an investment and you need to provide your sponsors with a return of investment. And, you know, where that comes on results or, you know, in the case you get injured, you have the social media that you can, you know, go back on. I definitely, you know, you have some people that take it a bit more over the edge that are always plug in, plug in, plug in, plug in. And I'm more of like a natural content Like, this is what I'm using. And, you know, it's not like, um, I don't make those shameless sponsors plugs all the time. Um, I think there's a right time and a right place for it. But yeah, I think if you don't have the results, at least it allows you to kind of be able to make some sort of an income by having such a social media following.
0: And I suppose as well, if you have the social media following, there's kind of a, a potential that you can continue your career after cycling, making some sort of income from cycling and you don't have to have the eye on, okay, I'm going to go back to law school. I'm going to retrain as an accountant because that can be very pressurized in the latter years of someone's career where they're starting to have one eye on that transition too. We're we're seeing like Alison Tetrick and stuff like that who's still kind of stepped out of the top, top level race and stuff, but is still looks to be bringing in quite a bit of cash and a full-time athlete off the back of those deals.
1: Yeah, just again, she's able to give her sponsors value in a way that sometimes I couldn't. Like if Specialized asked me to do, like last year at Unbound, the day before the race, they were doing a new shoot on the Diverge STR. And if Specialized called me and was like, hey, can you do a 6 a.m. shoot the day before Unbound? I'd be like, hell no. (laughs) Like I am here to win the race. Like I am not here to be do a photo shoot the day before my biggest race of the year. So, you know, Allie is like able to commit to that stuff. She's able to do more of the social ride. So like, that's a value that me as somebody that is looking to perform at the highest level, like I can't quite give that to my sponsors. So then that's kind of the sweet point. It's like, well, they have all these other athletes that can do all of that, you know, activation stuff before the race. And then, yeah, after the race, it's whatever Your race is done and you, you can commit yourself to a lot more stuff, but it gives the athletes a, a little bit of breathing room and it allows just other athletes to kind of give the sponsor that like engagement that they're really looking after.
0: Yeah, I can see the frustration of it. I was chatting to Alex Howes on the podcast and we done one while he was officially contracted to EF. So he's like, I can't really say much. And then he's like, let's do another one in a month though. My contract expires. So he jumped back on like a month later and he's like, oh man, it's hard because you're turned up at a gravel race and someone's like, oh, how come you were like ninth in the gravel race? You're a world tour rider and you're coming ninth. And he's like... I haven't been on the bike in two weeks. They're sending me to Zurich to do a ride with some investment bankers. Then they're sending me to Italy to do a photo shoot for Whoop. And he's like, I don't get a bike for some of this. They send him to Roller to do public speaking engagements. And by the time he gets back to do Unbound, it's just like the media pressure going, oh, world tour rider stepping into gravel. Big expectation. But it can be difficult to manage those. Uh, I want to take a little bit of a a left turn, Uh, a place that we're kind of fascinated with in Europe, and I'm sure you've spent some time there, is Girona in Spain.
1: I haven't been.
0: Oh, you haven't? Ah.
1: No, it's on my list. It's a parody
0: of itself (laughs) now. It's like, it's just, I don't know, it's like Witopia these days. I'm not sure if it's as cool as it used to be, but it's, uh, it's still pretty cool. But there's so many reasons it's cool. It's like proximity to the airport, good climate, great training roads. What's the US equivalent if you know myself or someone else is going over? Is Bentonville, Arkansas? Are they trying to build this cool biker vibe?
1: I mean, yes. I is it the equivalent? No, I would say Tucson, where I'm at, would be more of the equivalent of that. You know, Bentonville, yeah, you have all this money from Walmart. Um, the the two of the sons are super into cycling and they have done so much for that community. And they have so many races. Like last year I was there three times, you know, one's for two for gravel, one's for mountain biking. And, you know, they hosted UCI Cyclocross World Championships and are super involved in the racing in the U.S. But I wouldn't say that's where people go to train, uh, especially in the winter. It's definitely could be super, super cold. But Tucson, Arizona, where I'm at now it's, uh, we're super close to the Mexican border. So we're pretty far down, so closer to the equator and the weather here is super mild. So you have a lot of professional cyclists that come to spend the winter here. Like, you know, that Quinn Simmons was here for a while. So it was his brother, uh, Riccatello, a lot of the U.S. domestic road racers, you know, you have me, Keegan, Russell, a lot of gravel people are also here and a lot of mountain bikers. So, and we have this really famous group ride. I don't know if you heard of it, but it's called the Tucson Shootout. That's every Saturday.
0: I've heard of the shootout, yeah. Because I used to race for an American team, so some friends would base themselves down there. And all I hear is shootout, shootout, shootout.
1: Yeah, it is like the. I think it is the hardest group ride in the world, basically. Uh, But (laughs) yeah, and I don't say that lightly. Like I think it truly, really is, and it's it's savage, and it's basically what it is, it's you meet, it's always on time, which I so appreciate for a group ride. Like they're so punctual, like that never happens, especially when you have, you know, sometimes there's normally three groups and normally the A group, we could be like a hundred, 150 people. So like, it's like, it's a massive amount of people. And, you know, you roll through town and as you're rolling through town, people start meeting up and uh, yeah, you get to this point where it's a stop sign. And from there you race, it's basically like anywhere between 38 and 44 minutes, I would say is the segment. I don't know how, what it is in distance, but it's this road, very little traffic, one to 3% grade. So you're kind of always climbing, but it seems really flat and you have just a couple little kickers. And yeah, no stop signs, nothing. So it's like a full on race down this, on this road and there's attacks and, you know, there's breakaways that happen and, you know, and it ends on a little sprint and then you kind of have a four mile rolling regroup and then the group will split. Like if you're going to go do a five hour day, you make a right to go to do this Madeira climb. And if you're on the short day, you stay left and kind of loop back into town and then do a little climb. And then you kind of race back in on the same way you went out. But Yeah, for me, it's, I basically get a race every Saturday and it starts super early, like early winter. It's a a 7am ride. And, you know, once we get into May, it actually starts at 6am because it gets so hot here. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool one.
0: There's something similar in Toronto. Have you ridden the Toronto donut ride? I've not. Yeah, it's kind of similar. I don't think the standard doesn't sound as high. There's not as many pros around. Or I was based out in Toronto for a while and you would get like like some Michael Barry from Team Sky would have been rolling up on it. But the same sort of idea, it's this group ride that has absorbed all other group rides in the area. So it starts out and there could be, you know, 15, 20 people meeting up. But as it passes each junction, it'll pick up another group of 15, 20. And by the time it gets to the outskirts of the city, the speed's picking up and up and there could be a group of, you know, north of 200 people and they kill each other until they get into the coffee shop and then it's a bit more civil on the way home. We're really missing that in Europe. We have nothing like that. These are unique US Canadian phenomenons.
1: Yeah. And I think it just has to do with like the road infrastructure that we have here. You know, like we've tried to kind of come up with a similar thing uh, where we base ourselves out in the summer in Utah, but there's just no road that gives you a 45 minute effort with low traffic, no stop signs, no stoplights. So like, it's really, really unique. Um, I think
0: it's your love of McDonald's. I think you've supersized the group ride.
1: (laughs) Maybe, maybe, but it is, it is crazy. Like, you know, with the three groups, sometimes you could have up to like 400 people out on the road and it's just a group ride, you know, like split up into, maybe 400 might be a bit overstating, but at least 300, especially in February when you have a bunch of people coming here for some summer, escaping the winter, So they come for little winter sunshine miles.
0: I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Chetelis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment, but they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage and resisting the urge to relocate production like so many competitors to lower cost labor markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. Just to finish up, I had an interesting guest on recently, and I was talking to her about, I've been trying to plan out Like, what does my perfect day look like? And I was kind of obsessed about going like, okay, what does my perfect day if I get up in the morning I like to do this like red light therapy thing I do? I do a shower, a little bit of journaling, meditation, have a nice coffee. And I was like, okay, this is like my perfect start to the morning. And then she had this concept where she wrote a book called 168 Hours. There's 168 hours in a seven-day period. And instead of trying to optimize your perfect day, she says you should be focused on trying to optimize your perfect week. What does your perfect week look like?
1: That's a good question. I mean, all my days kind of look the same. Like I wake up whenever I wake up. That's kind of the thing I love about being a professional cyclist. I don't have to really set an alarm unless it's the Saturday group ride. Um,
0: Unless you have a podcast scheduled.
1: That too. (laughs) Um, But no, just wake up. I have breakfast. Normally let that breakfast digest for 60 minutes to 90 minutes. Um, And then I go out and do my training if I had to eat lunch before I could do my training, like it sounds so stupid, but that gives me such anxiety because it's like my body isn't used to having like two foods in me. Like it's just breakfast and ride. Like if I had to do something in the morning and then have lunch before I ride, I just never feel good on my bike. And I think it's because in the U S we always race so early. We're in Europe most of the time the road races are in the afternoon. So it's super common to like you do early breakfast and then, you know, like lunch and then you go race. But anyways, I do my training, come back, um, have lunch, hang out, probably catch up on emails, hang out with my dog, either do some strength session, get a massage, cook. I love to cook. So I normally spend quite a bit of time in the evening cooking. Um, And then we take the dog for a walk and then- Simple life. Yeah, I do my stretching normally at- Eight o'clock, we do like a half hour, 45 minute stretch foam roll session every evening. And then in bed by 9 30 and asleep, I go. So, uh, rock and roll. Yeah, very, very boring. I always say, you know, I'm um, well, I turned 29 in a few days, but I'm 29 going on 60 for sure.
0: <laughs> uh, you've only one more year left. 30 is the worst birthday. I'm still suffering from anxiety from my 30th birthday. It's like at 29, you kind of get away with it. Ah, oh, you know. Sophia, she's a bit wild. Don't worry, she's only twenty nine. Then it's like thirty? Oh, you should know better. You <laughs> should that's yeah. some dumb shit for a thirty year old. It's a yeah. weird junction. Uh, are you gonna win the lifetime Grand Prix next year? Were you second overall last
1: year? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, I messed that up so good last year. I just uh I I cracked pretty hard last year from Physically, I kind of messed up a few things after Unbound. And then uh, mentally, I just had things in my personal life that I just wasn't quite dealing with. And yeah, I messed that up super bad. So I would love to win it, mainly because if I win it, then maybe the third year I don't have to do it again. Like once you do something, like, well, maybe I get to go focus <laughs> on other races, you know, maybe do some more of the World Cups. Or I really want to go do the Finland gravel race that Botas puts on and stuff. So um, yeah, it's, it's a goal, but I'm definitely targeting a few more individual races. And then I think for me, the big thing this year with my coach that we're working on is for me, it's easy to win the races that I put on as a races, which sounds weird because like normally my a races are probably the most competitive, but when you're in really good form, and you know, I have prepared to the best of my capabilities, you have super high confidence and you show up prepared. And, you know, I show up to that star line and I'm like, I'm winning today. Like, it's not a question. Like, I am going to go out and do this. So now I kind of need to take that mindset and apply it to my B and my C races. Like, I want to learn how to win on the days that I'm not 100% that I'm performing at 70% or 80%. So it's like, I'm working on that mindset of like, like when I'm on, like good luck keeping up with me, but hey, I'm going to still kick your butt when it's not my A race, you know, like it's that filler race or maybe my, you know, I'm carrying a little bit more fatigue and I have to race it more strategically and I can't just go out full gas, you know, from the gun.
0: But I think that's such a key to everything in life. Like even if you think about it on a micro level, like doing training sessions, if you only got a good training session in when all the stars aligned, when everything was perfect, you know, I'm not a full-time athlete anymore. So if I only got a good training session in when my schedule was free, when I was hydrated properly, when I slept well, I we get so few good training sessions in, you need to be able to execute in less than optimal conditions. And I think about that with the podcast as well, because I'm six days a week in the podcast. And it's like, okay, I can have these amazing inspired conversations when all the stars line up, but that's like, maybe that's 10% of the time. Maybe that's 5% of the time how do I bring my A game on days when I don't feel good or I'm a little hungover, where I have a headache or I didn't sleep well, or I'm minding my sister's kid or something. He's crying all morning. And then how do you switch it on and bring the A game? And I think it's so important in so many aspects of our life to be able to do that.
1: I a hundred. Yeah, I agree. And I think, yeah, just confidence too comes at the end of the day. And I, I've never wanted to be a professional cyclist. Like it was never my dream. So like, for me, all the things I'm achieving, I always say they're goals. They're not dreams because dreams aren't real. We're like a goal. You can set steps and processes to achieve them. So, you know, or like the whole thing of trust the process. Like I don't trust the process. I know the process. So it's like, I'm definitely so analytical in so many ways, but it's like, yeah, you just, I've gotten to the point in my career that it's like, okay, like I have maximized all these big gains I possibly can. Now I had to start focusing on the minute gains to kind of get me up to be able to do another step up in performance. And it's like, I'm just done making excuses for myself on why I couldn't, shouldn't perform at, you know, a race that I'm a little bit tired or a race that is at altitude or things like that. So it's like, it's time to put on the big girl pants on. I'm like, like, let's go and freaking, you know, like, it's just kind of having that like I'm going to go out there and I'm going to show people all the hard work that I do. And, you know, I'm going to be the toughest competitor out on the field. So it's a completely different mindset that I'm having for this year. And I'm really looking forward to kind of getting the season really, really kicked off here in a few coming weeks.
0: I'm coming over to race Leadville as well. So hit me up if you want to talk about those tactics. Maybe I can drop back. I can give you a bit of gas for a couple of hours (laughs) and we can. It could be this whole thing. Don't worry.
1: Yeah. Well, Leadville, that's a race that I said I would never be able to win. And I didn't even finish last year. I got sick like two hours in, I was throwing up and went up Columbine feeling like shit, just dropping back, dropping back. And then my teammate Russell was running down the hill after he had exploded his wheel. So I gave him my wheel and called it a day for me after having to hike down the mountain for like an hour and a half in road shoes. That was not a smart call. Um, but yeah, like something like Leadville that I've said, I'm never doing that race or I can never win that race. Like it's something that, you know, I want to show up with the mindset of like, I'm going to go out there and perform and like really truly give it my best and just no excuses and not finish the race seeing coulda, woulda, shoulda. Just, you know, full commitment and
0: yeah. What's the mental roadblock with a race like Leadville? Because, you know, physically and physiologically, you know, you're you're capable of winning it. Skills-wise you're capable of winning it. So is it the altitude? You know, you spend a lot of time in Utah. That doesn't seem like it would phase you too much. Like You would think. It seems like you have all the ingredients to win it. Where's the hang up?
1: Yeah, I I don't see myself as a climber. Um, and, and that's something I'm really working on this year. Like I'm such an explosive rider and VO2 efforts. I've always had a super high VO2 and those punchy efforts are super natural to me. But that long and sustained effort climbing has always kind of been my Achilles heel. And I think a lot of it has to do with when you're going super hard on the road and it's flat, you have all this sensory feedback of like the wind, you can feel it, you're flying at, you know, 40K an hour, 30K an hour, whatever it is. And then when you're on a climb, you're going so much slower and you just feel everything. You hear your heartbeat, you feel your heartbeat, you can hear your breathing. Like everything just hurts and when you stop pedaling just for like half a second, like you just slow down. So it's, it's, it hurts to climb. Like it, it just hurts more. Like you could be doing the same power, but it feels so, for me, at least it feels so much better on the flats than on the climbs. So this whole base season, we've been working just my like high-end climbing power. And, and then when it comes to altitude, I've spent a lot of time at altitude since I was 18 when I went to college in Durango, Colorado. And then now I base half of my year in Utah But it always takes me about a month or so to like start to feel good at altitude. And you know, my partner Keegan, he goes to altitude and he no effect on him just because he grew up at that elevation. So for me, sometimes I have to learn how to race a little bit differently because I can't be explosive at 10,000 feet. Like I need to gauge my effort. And like, if my vo2s aren't above 300 watts i feel super lame so that's also another thing like the massive drop in ftp that i get when i go up in altitude like i know why it's happening but i hate it because i'm like i should be doing higher power like why am i such a baby why do i suck you know so it's so much mental i think for me
0: how diligent are you as getting your blood works done and tracking your red blood cell counts and stuff
1: Uh, I used to be better. Uh, This year I'm going to be a lot better. Uh, So I kind of got my baseline, you know, for this winter, I'll probably go get tested at the end of April. Um, And then again, kind of once I'm back at, at altitude, but yeah, I know like if I sleep high and train low, I see a massive performance gain, but if I'm sleeping high and training high, I just, yeah, I just, I don't know. It's just, I just feel super stuck. And I just, my power drop off is kind of crazy. And sometimes I like, can't even look at power when I'm doing my efforts and I go RPE and I'm like dying. And then I look at my power and I'm like, wow, I suck. (laughs) Like that was, that, those two numbers like do not match. Yeah,
0: altitude is a put your garment in your back pocket and ride off feel type thing. But I think as well on the, I've seen amazing performance gains from people being really diligent on their blood panels and just understanding, you know, in week one of altitude exposure, how far you can push. It's almost recalibrating your zones for altitude, but also recalibrating your zones for your specific red blood cell count you have. But I've got so head fucked with this as well, where I'm going bad for whatever reason. I've slept bad, stress is high. And I immediately jump to the conclusion of, oh, there's something up with my red blood cell counts. That's why I'm going so shit. I've got, like, I've developed anemia. I'm like, and it's easy to start getting that into your head. And as you're in a race and it's getting hard, it's probably hard for everyone around you. But if you have that nagging doubt in your head saying, oh, there's something in my bloods is not right. It's a bad mental headspace to be in.
1: Yeah. And I think too, with blood work, So much of it has to do with like your hydration as well. Like if you're overly hydrated or underhydrated, So you kind of have to be diligent on when and how you get tested. Because if you do like a massive training block or a massive race block, and then you get your blood work done right after, it's probably going to be shit because your body's pretty run down. So it's like you have to give your body, you got to make sure that you're doing the testing at a point that you're recovered So the baseline, like, so the numbers you're comparing at are like related, but yeah, I mean, there's so much to gain. And I think, yeah, the biggest thing is just mental toughness. Like, I think that's really where each athlete can make the biggest jump in performance. It's just like, you can only do so much physically and then the rest becomes on who's going to be the toughest out there and who's like not going to give up and kind of push hard until the end and, you know, just have that like mental fortitude and just like savagery, I guess. Just, ah, I don't know. I get pumped just thinking about like the mental space of racing and what you have to do to perform and whatnot.
0: Do you plan on working with a sports psychologist for the coming year?
1: Uh, no, actually I probably should. Uh, I did try to work with somebody He works with the U S ski team in Utah for a while. And he kind of worked on just giving me a lot of tools for me to kind of progress and do the things that I needed to. But I think my coach kind of becomes my therapist a lot of the time. And I think I can be super honest and real with her that, you know, she can kind of call me out when I need to be called out. And yeah, she's like my best, a really good friend, my coach, my therapist, kind of all in one package.
0: (laughs) Also, this podcast was a form of therapy as well for you.
1: Exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> sophia thank you very much for joining me on the robot podcast best of luck for the coming season and i'm looking forward to racing against you over in level.
1: yeah i can't wait to see you i can't wait to see uh what you think of that race start slow is what i've learned don't go hard until you're on the way back <laughs>
0: <laughs> cheers sophia thanks for chatting
1: thank you thank you thank you for listening to today's podcast have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to Sarah at roadmancycling.com.